this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com south africa in the 1980s is a brutal racist apartheid regime those who oppose it risk their lives Apartheid was a system of institutionalised racial segregation that existed in South Africa from 1948 to the early 1990s. Sue Dobson was a young white South African woman, but she was also a spy for the banned African National Congress. The ANC was a liberation movement known for its opposition to apartheid. In the 1980s, she built a legend, a fake persona, where she pretends to conform moving easily through the echelons of the racist government in her work as a journalist, whilst concealing her espionage and military training in the Soviet Union and her intelligence work. Sue has written a book about her experiences called Burned, The Spy South Africa Never Caught. There's links in the episode notes for you to purchase the book and support Cold War Conversations. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations. I'm delighted to welcome Sue Dobson, to our Cold War conversation. I think my earliest memories were um, an awareness of colour, and that was sort of probably at an age of about four, I would say. And um, I was standing in a queue in in the post office with my mother, and it just occurred to me that the queue next to us were darker skinned than we were that we were pink and they were darker than us. And um, that sort of slowly became more of an awareness as I became older. And once I could read, um, you know, when I was a little bit older, I was able to read the signs on buildings or the signs on park benches, um, which were actually the signs of what we call petty apartheid, where they would say, um, Net blunkers, which means whites only, or slacks blunkers, only whites. And, you know, that was something that is quite a strange thing, really, for a child to read in public places, you know. And I remember querying that, you know, sort of saying, what does that mean? Or what do whites mean? What do blacks mean? Um, for instance, we had public transport that was segregated. We had buses and trains for white people. We had white education. I went to a a white school. I didn't sit next to um, children of color. They didn't attend the same school. 
And those signs of segregation were very much around us and part of our everyday life. Entrances to buildings, for instance, um, you'd have an entrance for white people and an entrance for black people, and that would be signposted. What was your parents' view of apartheid? Did they believe in it? It was a very sort of, um, for want of a better word, a very sort of schizophrenic existence, if you like, where there was a lot of um, distrust among people who were different. Uh, We were brought up really to distrust people who were different from us. I'm a white South African and I'm English speaking, but there was a lot of um, prejudice towards Afrikaners, Afrikaans-speaking white South Africans, and uh, from their side, there was some prejudice towards English-speaking South Africans, and also there was the um, very obvious prejudice towards people of colour. And I suppose that I grew up with that awareness that children in other countries wouldn't necessarily grow up with. And it was very much a topic um, around the dinner table. It was something that was always discussed. Um, And I think what South Africa does to one is it creates an, uh, an awareness of diversity where perhaps there shouldn't be an awareness of diversity. And certainly from a young age, um, and politics was always a um, issue for discussion. And from a very young age, I remember being party to discussions of issues of race or issues of politics or very heated discussions about the government. Uh, my father was a civil servant, but he was um, vehemently against apartheid yet very suspicious of integration. So that's what I mean by sort of quite a schizophrenic existence, Um, not really knowing where he stood, I suppose. Um, And that was very much a part of our existence. I don't think any of us really knew where we stood on issues of race or colour or creed. And that added to our general confusion. What awareness did you have about the the rest of the world when you were in South Africa? Were you limited in what access you had? Very much so. Um, Our media was heavily censored for political reasons, and we were not exposed to any criticism of South Africa. The radio was heavily censored, newspapers were censored, And we didn't have television until 1976, so we were not party to events that were carrying on in the rest of the world. We were not aware of the um, movements towards liberation in African countries. That was not shared with us. And when we did have that sort of information, that was heavily slanted um, towards the right, if you like, and very critical And um, South Africa was quite an isolated place at that time. We were very much, um, you know, on the tip of Africa. We were not quite seen as part of Africa, yet we were not part of Europe. Um, And there was this um, issue of identity, I think, that South Africans had at that time, where they were not quite sure where they fitted in. They were not European, yet they were not African. 
And I think that added to our, our sense of isolation. And also there were political sanctions because of apartheid. So it meant that we were very much deprived of performers from Europe. So we were quite isolated when it came to entertainment and culture. And also um, we had sports sanctions and political and um, economic sanctions. So we were very much isolated, I think. And we had that quite defiant attitude that we could make it on our own. I guess in the the sort of geopolitical outlook, South Africa was seen by some in the West as a bastion against communism overrunning Africa. Yes, very much so. And, um, you know, one can't ignore the influence that the West had on that. Um, you know, we were very much, I think, supported in that dare I say, by um, some European countries who were very vehemently anti-communist and also by the United States at that time. And any movement towards preventing communism or the the growth of, of socialism in any of these developing African countries um, was frowned upon. So South Africa was seen as, as a bastion almost, as, a, as an outpost, if you like. Um, against these things. And for that reason, there was um, some support, you know, economic support, um, not overt, I might add, but, you know, sort of quiet support, shall we say. And um, we were isolated, yet we were not isolated, if that makes sense. Now, the Soweto uprising is quite a catalyst for you in terms of your political awakening certainly yeah the soweto uprising was between the 16th and 18th of june 1976 it was a series of demonstrations and protests led by black school children in south africa under apartheid deaths are estimated at a minimum of 176 with some estimates up to 700 with over a thousand injured can you tell me about how you heard about it, what you saw, what you experienced? Well, at the time, I was a schoolgirl. I must have been about 14. And it was just at the time that television came to South Africa. And I remember witnessing some televised um, coverage of those uprisings and being moved and revolted at the same time as what was happening on the screen, that these were children like myself, of a similar age to me. They were children, but I couldn't quite identify with the expression that they, were, they had. They, they had a mixture of fear and horror and anger. And, you know, we witnessed coverage of that brutality you know despite the fact that we were censored some of that coverage was still shown to us and i think the reason behind that was to frighten us and to show us that there was the potential for uprising and therefore we should be prepared for this and we should be vigilant for this and in reality these were school kids who were very similar to me. The only difference was that they were 
darker-skinned, and they were having a peaceful protest against Afrikaans as a medium of instruction in their schools. And all they wanted was either English as a medium of instruction, because it is a, an international and universal medium, or they wanted their own language, for which they were perfectly entitled. And their protest, their attempts to find a voice, were met with brutality by the police, who opened fire on them with live ammunition. And that moved me profoundly. It made me realize that these were children like me, who was going to look after those children, who was going to care for them, who was going to sort out the issues that troubled them, and it occurred to me that they had nobody, that they were completely isolated, and they were persecuted because of their color. And that moved me profoundly, and that was probably the most politicizing event in my youth. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So what what did you think that you could do to change South Africa? I felt incredibly powerless as a white teenager. I felt that I had nothing at my disposal. I had no way of joining those children. What I wanted to do, my first reaction, was to join them, that I wanted to be part of that protest that I was touched and moved by the unfairness that they had to deal with, by the injustice of that system and the injustice of the issues that they were dealing with. And I wanted to find a way to do that. Now, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. As a white child, there was no opportunity for me to meet black children. I had no opportunity to... Um, become politicized in that way, to have any introductions at that point in my life. And for several years, I observed this, and I became, I think, angrier and more motivated to try and do something that I could not stand by and watch this. I could not be a part of this oppression. Um, I wanted to to walk with those children, to march with those children, even, even if it was towards the barrel of a gun. I wanted to be part of that struggle. And eventually, um, some years later, through family connections, um, I was introduced to someone who was a member of the ANC. And at that time, um, the ANC had been recruiting 
if you like, or had been receiving children who had been disillusioned by the Soweto riots, who had grown up and who were a little older and who had left South Africa and joined the training camps of the African National Congress in surrounding African countries. And they wanted to be part of the military struggle to actually work towards creating a democratic South Africa because clearly peaceful means and negotiation were not going to get us there. And I wanted to be part of that. So you were able to make contact with the ANC through a a family connection. What did contact with the ANC look like? Well, contact with the ANC was strictly banned. Um, We were not allowed to be members of the African National Congress. The African National Congress was a banned organization. And certainly its military wing, Mkonto Wisizwe, was also a banned organization. And if one belonged to the ANC or sympathized with the ANC, then you faced some sort of um, arrest, interrogation, and probably a prison sentence. So if one had contact with the ANC, it had to be done through covert ways. Um, or rather, uh, um, yeah, it, it had to be underground. One had to make contact quietly and discreetly, usually outside South Africa or in one of the neighboring countries. And in my case, um, I was indirectly introduced to Aziz Pahad of the ANC, and I met him in London. And um, I was very keen to be part of the ANC. And I suppose he was quite used to young people who were idealistic and motivated and a bit of a firebrand, perhaps I was. And... um, his advice to me was something I didn't necessarily want to hear, but was something very useful. We'll come to that in a, in a moment. So, I mean, even meeting in London was dangerous. Absolutely. Um, I remember being very conscious of the fact that I could be followed or Aziz could be followed, more likely. And, um, of course, they would want to know who he was meeting and you know the ANC was highly infiltrated by agents at that point in time the South African security police had infiltrated the movement to a great extent and unfortunately there were very many informers and it was difficult to actually be part of the ANC it was dangerous and one had to keep one's wits about one you had to be very aware of where you were, um, you know, your um, route to a meeting, for instance, where you were meeting someone. If there was any doubt at all that that meeting was under surveillance, it had to be called off immediately. So I was quite aware of the fact that this was risky. It was a dangerous thing for me to do. And it was quite likely that, you know, you could be rumbled even before the process began. You know, it's quite possible that you could be followed and and later on arrested or interrogated. And Aziz's role was to screen people because I, I imagine somebody who effectively walks in and says, I'd like to join the ANC, they're immediately going to think this is potentially going to be a spy. Um, 
And so how did they vet you? Or how, how did they try and check your background? It must have been quite peculiar because there I was, you know, sort of all 18 or 19 years old of me, um, you know, sort of terribly idealistic, terribly eager, wanting to be part of this. And obviously so green and so inexperienced. And, um, you know, his, his advice was quite sobering to me. And he said, go back to South Africa, create a legend for yourself, make yourself as inconspicuous as possible, blend into South African society, don't do anything to attract attention to yourself. Do not speak about politics with anybody. Do not get involved in any um, organizations that are politically suspect, that might arouse suspicion. Go home and blend into society. Create a legend and learn how to live it. And then after a while, come back to us and we'll talk again. And of course, I was sort of bitterly disappointed. I had expected that this was going to be it, and I was going to join the struggle. But it turned out to be the best advice anybody could have given me, and um, it served me in good stead right through my life. And and that must have been quite difficult, because that means cutting off friendships, contacts, you know, and, and completely isolating yourself. It did. It was a very lonely process, and... I started to do it the moment I returned. And as as a student at the time, I had to distance myself from student organizations that were politically involved at the time, like the National Union of Students um, that used to hold protests or meetings. I had to distance myself from that. I couldn't belong to any organizations that were overtly political. I couldn't even have conversations about it. And I had to create that legend consistently. It had to be amongst all my friends and all my family. And it had to be that I had sort of lost interest in politics, that I, I didn't want to discuss it. I wasn't interested. I was an ordinary white South African woman I wasn't interested in politics, and I couldn't care less. And I worked very hard to create that image, but it did not sit easily with me. It was not an easy thing to do. So you decide that a that a good potential route is to try and infiltrate South African media. Can you tell me about what, what you did there? Yes, it seemed like the most logical thing to do at that point in time, because the media was heavily censored. And also, it gives you access to information. If you are aware of what's coming into that newsroom, you will be aware of what isn't being published. And I felt that that would put me in a position that would be beneficial, and I could actually also... um, have a look at what was going on in terms of informers because the media was also riddled with infiltrators at that point in time. For instance, crime reporters were openly on the payroll of the police and um, there was no 
no effort to hide it. It was a known thing. And I felt that it would be useful to get myself into a position and to blend in and just to watch and wait and see what my opportunities could be. And that's exactly what I did. I joined a newspaper that was very right-wing. And later on, I went into the Broadcasting Corporation and wrote um, hideous news bulletins with absolutely no content and um, worked my way through sort of various newspapers at the time. Had the ANC given you any training as to how to do this? Absolutely nothing. Um, it was very much a um, thing of going back and doing what they said I should do, but using my initiative as well in the process of doing it. And that meant I had to be very thorough. I had to be aware of the fact that, for instance, I couldn't have conversations in, in closed spaces in case they, places were bugged. Um, I couldn't write anything political. I could, you know, I, I just had to blend in. I had to live my legend. And it was very important to do that at the newspaper and particularly in broadcasting because the broadcasting environment was very conservative and um, very, very restrictive. How easy did you find it to basically live a lie permanently? I felt I'd sold my soul to the devil, really. And there were times where it was anything but easy. And it was difficult. It was confusing. It was disorientating. You know, you, you lose a sense of yourself at some point, And you have to keep reminding yourself what you're doing and why you're doing it. And that has got to be the thing that motivates you. And I think that's what kept me going. But... Luckily, um, I met Ronnie Casrolls when I did, because I had probably reached the end of being able to do that. I needed some sort of further instruction. I needed some sort of guidance. I needed something else to happen in order for me to, to be part of the struggle. And that's exactly what he provided me with when he gave me the opportunity for training. So this was 1986. This is your return back to London. Now you've built the legend. That's correct. I went back to London and um, I was very fortunate in that I was introduced to Ronnie through his wife. And um, we had a meeting and to my absolute elation, he offered me the opportunity of military training in the Soviet Union as an intelligence officer form contours we the armed wing of the african national congress you nicknamed him comrade chameleon i did indeed he was a very interesting character to watch and um, i learned a great deal from him by watching him he was very vigilant um, he was very watchful um, he was a good teacher when it came to you know watching someone it, it was very helpful to watch him when he offered you the opportunity to train in the Soviet Union, what what was your immediate re reaction to that? I was elated. I was absolutely delighted. It was something that I was aware that the ANC did, 
but I realized that it was not an opportunity that many people had, and I was very privileged to have that opportunity. Um, and it was basically training at an officer level, so I was extremely fortunate to have that. And also it meant that my role in the struggle was would be a significant role because of of the training I had. And I was very privileged to have that. And it, it served me in good stead. It kept me alive. And um, I think it still keeps me alive to this day, really. And what, what were your first impressions when you arrived in the Soviet Union? I was astonished at the humanity of the people that dealt with me. Um, they were all military people. They were all KGB trained. Um, they had seen military campaigns um, against, for instance, the Mujahideen. Some had worked in Syria. Um, some had been in Cuba. So there was a. a they were very. Um, they were very well educated. They were very knowledgeable. They knew a great deal about liberation struggles all over the world, and um, they were immensely motivated by the concepts of socialism. It was part of their lives. They lived it. They breathed it. And um, it was their role to teach me those things and to help me in my, in my role as an intelligence officer to train me. Um, I remember also being very moved by um, what I saw at the time, which was demonstrations for peace in the street. Uh, there were ordinary Muscovites who would go to the parks during their lunch breaks and they would be demonstrating for peace. And this was a very interesting time in history. It was the time of Glasnost and Perestroika. Gorbachev was in power. So it was a time of regeneration. It was a time of reshaping the Communist Party at that time. It was a time of, 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 um, almost liberalism, if I, if I could use that word. And certainly um, people were very excited about the changes that were happening there at that time, and I was so privileged to witness that. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. When you say that the, that you're certain that the training saved your life and still protects you, are you talking there more specifically about the, the training that you had to notice surveillance and lose surveillance and that sort of thing? 
Absolutely. Um, that is the skill that has never left me. Um, I have um, always used it. I believe it's kept me safe, and I believe it still does. And I have become, I suppose it's a, it's a way of life that I am I'm naturally watchful, naturally vigilant, Um you, you know, perhaps you might see that as a disadvantage, but certainly after the work I've done, it, it, it isn't. It, it's probably an advantage to me, and it's a strength, not a weakness. Now, they also gave you uh, weapons training. What sort of weapons were they training you on? Well, there was a, a selection of arms. I had instruction with things like the Browning, definitely the AK-47, um, you know, how to use that in the field because it's an extremely versatile weapon. It's easy to carry, easy to clean, easy to use. It's the weapon of choice for many liberation movements at the time. And um, also I, I got to fire things like an RPG, which was um, enormous and a huge heavy thing that knocked me completely off my feet. And, you know, unfortunately, very unpleasant things like landmines and limpet mines, which were very much a part of um, arms struggles at the time with liberation movements. I mean, that that must have been quite a, a transformation for you, being trained to use those weapons and being prepared to take somebody's life with a, with a weapon as well. It was quite a culture shock, I've got to say. Um, it was a part of myself that I wasn't aware of. I wasn't aware that I could could do that. I wasn't aware that I had the capacity to do that. And that was the um, sort of interesting side of, of, of self-discovery at that point in my life. Um, I had gone from being this um, innocuous um, sort of fluffy airbrained creature, you know, in, in South African newsrooms to a woman wearing Russian military um, uniform in the snow with a, with a shapka on my head and firing an RPG. And that was a huge culture shock, but very empowering, I must say, but nonetheless <laughs> a very big change for me. What comes across in the book is that you you build some quite strong bonds with the team that are training you. You're there for about a year, but you build some really strong bonds there. They were amazing. They were. Um, they had been in various campaigns um, throughout the world. They were decorated. That you know, a lot of them had um, decorations that they'd received. Um, through various battles or struggles that they had been party to or contributions that they had made. But um, the humanity, for want of a better word, the qualities that they had, they were immensely kind and immensely patient and extremely good teachers. And it was a, a glimpse into human nature, I think, which was incredibly rewarding for me. Now, um, I think you have to see this also in its historical context, really. 
you know, this was a good 30-something years ago. Obviously, recent changes in, in world politics and, you know, the issues with the Ukraine and, and Russia at the moment, people would not have that perception that I had. It'll be very different. And that my experiences have to be seen in that context. I think that's quite important. It's a historical concept, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's something different to what we're experiencing now and what we're seeing on the news today. What were they training you intelligence-wise? Well, you know, it's um, the basics, really. You know, surveillance, counter-surveillance. Um, one would uh, do things like secret letter writing, letter drops. Um, and the interesting things were the exercises where one would go out into the streets of Moscow and you would be given a brief. You have to pick up, um, for instance, six or eight people in that surveillance um, party, if you like. And your task is to out every single one of those people. And you have to use the various um, tactics that you've been taught, the various techniques, um, to out those people, and um, I'm, I managed to do that. And it's it's quite complicated because you have to find the people who are following you on foot. You have to find the people who are following you in in the traffic, which is very difficult to do. For instance, if you're on foot and somebody is following you, it's quite likely that they will have a series of disguises with them. So you know, one minute you might be looking for a man in a certain coloured coat. But he's discarded that, and you don't recognize that he's still following you. And the interesting thing about that is somebody never changes their shoes. So what you learn to do is look at their shoes, and that's one easy way of outing someone. Um, you know, just tactics like that, really. And the more you do that, the more practiced you become, the more relaxed you become, um, and it becomes second nature after a while. That's a top tip. Thank you for that, Seth. <laughs> Look at their feet. <laughs> Look at the shoes. It's always Absolutely. a giveaway. Um, wh what did you do when you weren't being trained? Did you have any spare time? There were spare sort of weekends, really. And um, the weekends were filled with um, entertainment. And it seemed to be that um, it would be someone's task to take me out. Now, I normally had a, um, my translator with me, and his name was Igor. He was my bodyguard and my translator and my go-to person. And Igor and I would go to the opera, or we would go to the ballet, or we'd go to the museums. At one point, we went to um, what was Leningrad uh, for, for the Christmas or New Year period. They celebrate New Year there. And that was a, a wonderful experience because I, I got to see the Hermitage, um, I got to see Leningrad, um, and I learned a great deal about the Russian identity, the Russian history as well. With, you know, it, it's touched with with suffering, it's touched with with sadness. Um, it's not an easy history, and the, the losses that they suffered during the Great Patriotic War, um, or you know what we know as the Second World War, 
so it is a history of suffering. It's it's quite poignant, really, to get into that Russian identity, to get into that Russian history, and to see how people lived and what motivated them and what moved them and what touched them. That was a, a very important experience for me. And what was so interesting is that culture was available to everybody. For a few kopecks, you could get on a streetcar and you could go down and you could see the most incredible opera performance or ballet performance that in the West would cost you a fortune and that only is available to people who have money. And there, it's available to everybody. Everybody had the a right to have access to that. And I found that very moving and very inspiring. We we move into 1987 and it's time for you to go back to South Africa. Are you confident at this point? I'm confident. I'm confident, but I'm wary. I'm When I say wary, I mean watchful wary. Um. I'm a lot more switched on now to what's going on in South Africa. I'm a lot more switched on to the techniques of the security police. I'm a lot more switched on to dirty tricks, if you like. Um, You know, the assassination squads, the poisonings, the attempts to kill exiles. I'm a lot more aware of everything that's going on in South Africa that perhaps most people were not aware of in South Africa. And I knew I was going back into to the melting pot. I was going back in, into the cauldron, if you like, and that's where it, it was happening. When you return to South Africa, you hear some shocking news about the friends that had introduced you to the ANC. Yes. Um, they were the victims of a car bomb explosion in Harare, and that was profoundly close to home, as you can imagine, and um, they were injured, and the message was very clear to me that the connection could easily be discovered, and I was very watchful about that and very aware that that connection needed to be hidden and protected. What instructions did the ANC give you as to what they wanted you to do as a spy? Interestingly, not much at all. Um, I remember sitting with Ronnie over a a dinner um, in Moscow with some of the generals in, in attendance, and Ronnie had come for a visit and there we were, we were sitting there and the housekeepers had served us caviar and the best silver was out and all the glassware and the generals were giving speeches and I had to give a speech and Ronnie had to give a speech. And I turned to him and I said, so what do you want me to do exactly? And he said, well, you know, just go home and, you know, infiltrate, get into government departments, get into media see how far you can go and that was the briefing I had so that's what I did and I was very lucky in that um, after my return I had a a period with one newspaper in Pretoria the capital city 
And then I actually managed to secure a position with um, a government publication run by basically the propaganda department, the Bureau of Information. And um, that was as an English writer and translator and interviewer. I interviewed government ministers. I did parliamentary duty for a short period. And my boss was the son of one of the government ministers. So I had landed in a perfect position for exactly what I wanted to do. Wow. So I was very, it was very fortuitous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what vetting were they doing? I mean, as you move into these roles, presumably they're because you're, you know, uh, working with quite important people or with potentially, um, I, I don't know, in in information that they wouldn't want to be uh, released um, externally. Well, how how are they checking your your what background? What one had to do was go through a series of security checks. Um, you had a clearance that you had to go through, and. Um, the, the basic clearance was, you know, just checking your, your details and, um, you know, that you lived where you said you lived and you did what you said you'd done and all the rest of it. The second clearance was slightly more detailed. And in my case, when I joined the Bureau of Information, I was actually called into police headquarters in Pretoria, security police headquarters. And I thought, God, all I need now is for them to find the, the connection you know, and that's it, the game's up. But they didn't. And the interview was absolutely farcical. Um, you know, there was a, a security policeman sitting behind the desk and he said, so tell me, lady, how do you feel about living next door to blacks? And that was the extent of the interview. And I thought, well, that's just ridiculous, you know. And on the basis of that, I had my security clearance, which is absurd. And um, then, unfortunately, the next level of security clearance proved to be my undoing. And um, that was when I was actually offered a position and an interview, rather, for a position with F.W. de Clark, the state president's department, as a media officer. And that involved a very, very stringent security check. And that proved to be my undoing. Sorry, folks, another cliffhanger. You'll have to wait till next week for the second part of Sue's incredible story. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters. And I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road if you'd like to help the project just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate the cold war conversation continues in our facebook discussion group just search for cold war conversations in facebook thanks very much for listening and see you next week
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.